Hi, I'm Matt Godbolt. And I'm Ben Reedy. And this is Two's Compliment, a programming podcast. Today, we're delighted to have our very first guest, James Grenning, joins us. Hi, James. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. Hi, Ben. How's it going? Long time. Yeah. So, James, do you want to give yourself a little introduction? Uh, sure. Um, yeah, I'll give you. I'll try to make it short. But uh, in high school, I had a friend that was programming, and it looked like a terrible thing. It involved punch cards and rooms with no windows. So I tried to stay away from that. And then in uh, college, I bumped into it as part of engineering school and found out it was actually fun. And then, uh, well, here I am, you know, forty-two years later, still enjoying it. Uh, have been lucky to run into a lot of good people along the way. Well, like Ben there, we were uh, working together about almost two decades ago, I think. Not Maybe not quite. Gosh. Not quite. Ran into Bob Martin early in my career. We worked together at the same company. And after, uh, so I did some uh, work at a big company for about 15 years and then ended up consulting. So I like to say I've been unemployed since 1996. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, then... Somehow Bob said, let's go to Snowbird. And I said, oh, yeah, I'd love to go skiing. And then there was that Agile Manifesto thing. So I got involved in that totally by accident. We can talk about that later. And uh, my background is embedded systems. And I learned C back before, you know, they had all the bugs out of the compiler. And in embedded <laughs> Wait, systems, got, C is when, used when, a lot. When know, did they so. get the last bug out? No one told me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, not all. I mean, the bugs are still winning. But uh, uh, at any rate, so... Uh, and then I, now what I do mostly is try to help uh, people learn how to do test-driven development in uh, embedded systems. And that's uh, I wrote a book about that, and uh, that's my business. And that's kind of why you were an obvious choice for us when Ben suggested, hey, I know a guy. <laughs> ben and I have been talking about <laughs> testing over the last few episodes, and in particular uh, testing in C and C++ and why it's different from everything else. Why, I mean, maybe it isn't as different as I think it is, but certainly in my experience compared to some other languages where it's very easy to install mocking, um, write tests around the edges of things, all those kinds of things where C++ you tend to have to design your system a bit differently, which we've discussed to death. But I would be interested in your experiences. But the first question I have really is, what makes something an embedded system? How do you define embedded? Good question. Uh, by the way, for me, so that my market is as big as possible, it involves a lot. <laughs> so is my cell phone an embedded system? Yes. I mean, certainly there are embedded aspects to your phone. And anything that you kind of look at, well, actually, phone is kind of hard to distinguish from a computer these days. Or a supercomputer uh, only 10, but, 10 years ago, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. But if you looked at like the early uh, cell phones and such, they, of course, had computers in them. And you would have certainly thought that was an embedded system because you recognize it as a phone, not as a computer. And so for my definition is kind of colloquial, I suppose. If you don't recognize the thing as a computer, it's an embedded system. Got it. Now, that means it could be quite big. It could be, you know, the a phone, uh, a camera, all kinds of things have computers buried in them. Cars, millions of lines of code in cars. It's like really scary. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so a car could be an embedded system. And in fact... Yeah, um, uh, some of us have cars that are very, very much explicitly you know, self-drivable <laughs> things, which is terrifying. Yeah. 
But but um, I was trying to explain to my my kids earlier. Actually, I said about what embedded systems was, and I was pointing at like the oven, and there's a little clock display, and I said that's an embedded system. And then that's right. you know, and then I was sort of working my way up, and, it, and it, that's what made me think: is a cell phone an embedded system? I know, you know, the modem in it is a has a baseband firmware and is doing some yeah. crazy RF manipulation stuff, and that definitely fits my mental model of what an embedded system is. But the phone itself, with all the you know, the ARM CPU and doing the the, the computy things, is still shares some of the the aspects with what i think of as a traditional embedded system that is it's it doesn't have a keyboard i can type on i'm not developing on it and i can't just write my tests on my my computer and have them run on it in the same way necessarily that they do on the actual device itself which i think is maybe what makes embedded testing different from other testing or am i barking up the wrong tree there um i'm not sure a tree you barked up but uh, you i was off like thinking about can i ssh into my phone it's like, you know, it is a little Linux box after all, but, uh, you know, so, but, you know, so are you, were you asking me like, is uh, testing of embedded systems different than testing anything else? Right. I suppose that's, yeah, that's, that's the question I have. Uh, well, yeah, it's, of course it's different, but uh, it's also the same. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I came back to, uh, well, we were working on a fairly large embedded system at Xerox in the late 90s. It was one of uh, Object Mentor, Bob Martin's company's clients, and it would have filled up the office I'm in. <laughs> and it, it was, you know, taller than me and, tw- you know, longer than my arm span. So, it, you know, over six feet tall and over six feet wide. And then you could chain them together. Wow. And that was an embedded system. <laughs> I'm used to being smaller than, uh, sorry, yeah. the embedded system being smaller than me. That's that's another thing in my sort of mental checklist of, is it embedded? But you didn't look at it as, it was a printer, right? You didn't look at it, it as a computer. And uh, right. it has all the problems of an embedded system. So what's the problem with an embedded system? One of the problems is that you can't just fire up the compiler on it, for instance. You know, like my laptop computer or my Mac, I can run the compiler on that. Uh, maybe you can run the compiler on your on your Android phone, I'm not sure. Probably could. Um, it probably does, right? When it's updating and stuff, I don't know. So you, typically, people doing embedded systems, they have cross compilation involved. So, you know, they're working mm-hmm. it on one system, you know, a Mac or a Linux box or a PC, usually with specialized tools that really aren't C anymore in some cases, because the silicon vendors have done you a favor. And extended the language. Yeah, <laughs> there's some um, air quotes there for that. For the <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's an air quote there. Um, you know, is it a handcuff to their silicon when you start to use their special features? Like they'll start to make uh, addresses. I'm sorry, they'll make uh, registers in the device mm-hmm. appear like global variables. And now the compiler does something special. Right. And then they'll annotate things. Say, well, this is not just a plain old function; it's an interrupt function. Put a special keyword on right. it. And that's like it kind of breaks stuff. But there's ways to get around all that. And I suppose that's really where that's my piques my interest because that's that's the kind of thing that is harder to test. I would imagine is if you have got, as you say, like a some apparent global variable that has to be a global variable because really it's a system register on your embedded system that controls. I don't know the LEDs that are that yep. are lighting up Serial on the system or something or like this. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So how does one go about? testing that so let's pick a say serial port that's a great example because it's going to be yep. driven by higher level bits of code but ultimately you're going to be sending stuff to a shift register or doing some magical thing maybe there's an interrupt associated with it what kind of yep. things are you thinking about when you're 
designing for test or just testing a piece of code that talks to a serial port? Well, it's been about 40 years since I did that, by the way, but, uh, <laughs> but that doesn't matter. I still remember, okay? You know, so if you're at low-level code doing one thing, you know, its job is to wait till something happens on the serial port and it has nothing to do until then. So it's just, I'm going to make it as simple as possible. No interrupt for starters. Uh, the software might be sitting there saying, is there a character? Is there a character? Is there a character? Is there a character? And then maybe every now and then it would go and change the LED so that you knew that something was happening, right? You know, every thousand cycles through there or something, maybe it changes the LED. I don't know what the right cycle, what the right, right, right. duty rate for that would be today. Yeah, but then once it said uh, there is a character there, then you would go read it and then you would do something with it. You know, so, uh, you know, a, a single purpose driver for a UART or something. Let's just say it's waiting for a line of text. So it would grab that character and would say, mm -hmm. are you a character turn? Are you an enter button? And you'd say no, and you put it into the queue. You put it into the circular buffer, whatever it is. Are you one? And until all that happens, then as soon as that happens, then something else would take over, right? So that would be, uh, you might build a little thing that yeah, knew yeah. how to uh, take characters from a device and put them into a FIFO so that something else could take it out, right? You know, so mm -hmm. separation of concerns. You know, lots of people right. doing embedded systems are, well, I got to first, I often tell a joke, and hopefully I won't alienate anybody that might be listening that <laughs> will be offended by this joke. But uh, what's the definition of embedded software? I don't know. I don't know. What's the definition of embedded software? Software written by double E's. Mm. <laughs> I see why you said that was contentious. <laughs> yeah. Okay. In good humor, please. I know. <laughs> Just kidding, everybody. Hey, I, I studied double E too, so don't okay. worry. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's like... Right, but so you 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 were talking about separation of concerns, and so presumably the the sort of the take home there is that first of all to make something to be make something testable, one has to separate one's concerns, and then you were kind of alluding to something perhaps that's right, yeah, <laughs> negatively, which yeah. maybe thinks that maybe by default that's not what happens when people write the well, code as you yeah, just described. Yeah, so again, not to sound like uh, you know, there's a lot to know in this world. And to uh, get an app to work is amazing, okay? Uh, I like to say being able to get an app to work means you pass the aptitude test. For oh, dad jokes. Oh, the dad jokes are coming out. <laughs> Spelled A-P-P dash to yeah. Okay, yeah. now it's amazing to be able to do it at all. Now, then the next thing is, can you do it such that someone else could actually look at your work and know what you did? Right. Or could you even look at it yourself two weeks later and know what you did? I keep wondering who keeps breaking into my Ruby on Rails website and messing it up for me. <laughs> but uh, but I kind of know who that is, you know. So I'm the only one with the keys, so it's got to be me. <laughs> right. Um, it's that previous you. Darn him. Yeah, so, so knowing uh, – discovering, really, in emergent design, right, discovering where the boundaries in a system should be, you know. So in the beginning – I I see all kinds of fun stuff when I work with my clients. Uh, about 12 years ago, this happened with one of my clients. They said, well, you know, after your training class, you're going to stay with us for two days. And uh, and you're going to show, you know, we're going to use it on some of our code while you're still here. It's like, okay, that sounds like a good idea. I usually tried to sell that. And I kind of gave up because nobody wanted to, you know, buy extra consulting time. So I just took the class. And this, this client uh, flew people in from around the world to participate in the workshop, and then we uh, then we ended with a couple a day and a half of 
in their code. And uh, well, we ran into some crazy stuff hmm. in their code. And uh, so we it worked well. So I started going for this company to numerous places around the world. And one place I was at, they brought their code to the workshop. And it was one file with main in it and about 5,000 lines. Wow. And it worked. And it's doing this critical job. and But there was absolutely no separation of concerns. Wow. As and, an employee, you know, <laughs> that would make my heart sink. But as a consultant, does that make you think, hooray, I'm, I can come in here. I can save you from yourselves. <laughs> well, it means that yeah. um, I can probably keep working as long as I feel like it. Pretty sure. I, you know. <laughs> as long yeah. as it continues to be fun. Uh, and it is great fun. Now, that also opened my eyes because I thought I would show people TDD and toy problems in a clean room environment. Mm-hmm. Right, green a green field, and they would be able to integrate that into the way they think, and then be able to take it to work. And then they started showing me their actual code, and kind of some of the problems because I didn't actually run into those compilers that are helping you. More air quotes here, right, um, <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs> and uh, you know, one guy said, "Oh, does this mean I don't have to test my code?" He was looking for a an out. It's like, no, we don't give up that easy. <laughs> The preprocessor is an amazing Swiss Army knife. It's a, it's a yes, and like a Swiss Army knife, you can cut yourself quite badly with it as well. But obviously, <laughs> it, some <laughs> sometimes it's the only thing you've got when That's you're right. up against the, as you say, vendor strange extensions, and you're like, well, yeah. I can replace .io.h with my own one, maybe, and then we can record what the printf was doing or whatever heinous oh, yes. trickery. Okay, you've- <laughs> I've <You've> done- <laughs> I've been around. I've seen a few of the things you can do. <laughs> yeah, but I'm interested. What other? You know, that that's obviously we can talk about that in a minute specifically. But uh, you know, you're you're saying that there are some tricks in the bag that maybe are not obvious. That it, it takes somebody who's had the experience, like yourself, of knowing how to unpick that five thousand line file into testable components and the kind of techniques that you can use and the fact that it is kind of worth it as well at the end of it all which i think when you are you don't know those techniques and when you're not really sure that it's going to be beneficial it's really hard to convince yourself to do the work or to moreover like ben you would often say at this point or to convince the people that pay you that it's worth doing the work yeah 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 certainly something we were talking about uh in another episode is you know when is the right moment to sort of point out the elephant in the room and say, hey, you know, every time we make a change to this code, we introduce two bugs. So every time we fix a bug, we get two more bugs. So if we keep doing this, eventually we're going to have an infinite number of bugs. And if we don't change what we're doing, then that's not going to work out well for anybody. And so, you know, it's, it's, uh, I don't know about, about you, James, but certainly when I was consulting and sort of for some period after that, when I was, I would be mentoring or talking to people about testing, the most common question I would get is, you know, hey, I have this legacy system. I have this old system. I have the 5,000 line main method. How do I do the things that you're talking about? And, you know, my unfortunate response is that's probably like the hardest thing that you can do with testing, right, is is retrofitting that existing system. Um, but there's always a place to start. You know, I, I, I never want to give people the impression that, there, that you, you shouldn't even try, right? There, there's always a way to start pulling things apart. There's always a way to start making more testable areas of your code. Oh, yeah, there is. 
especially with the Swiss Army knife in your pocket. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes you got to pull a few dirty tricks to get there, right? Like if, if that's what it takes, then that's what it takes. But um, I, would, I would love to hear some of your experiences sort of rescuing some of those code bases. Like what, what tricks were you able to pull to, to get some testable pieces of code out? Now, tricks is not the right term. I'm, no, that's um, techniques. I usually techniques. call them uh, engineering techniques. There you go. Um, I mean, I mean hacks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. And then I have a whole webpage dedicated to this, by the way. Oh. And it uh, it's uh, how do you get your legacy C into a test harness mm. is uh, the name of it. It's it's on my website, and it's because of a that trip around the world I did with this one customer. Every time I went, I saw something different. Yeah, yeah. And I right. would write an article about it. And that way, the next time I ran into it, I could say to the person in the workshop that has it, it's like, oh, you've got this problem. Go read this article. Yeah, nice. And then, uh, then I could manage a group of 20 people if some of them are off reading articles, right? Yeah. So there's some things there. And uh, yeah, jokingly, I call them, now we're going to learn an engineering technique. <laughs> and then, I mean, hack <laughs> uh, to get past this problem. And don't. Don't think, I think this is a good idea for you to do and leave it in your code. Uh, because you did this hack, it means you need to go and fix something later. But let's just see if we can get your code under test first. Yeah. This is the uh, the mindset would be, don't change the production code. Can I do something external in a build or, you know, in the make file or the <laughs> one of the Swiss Army knife, uh, knife techniques is to uh, put a include file on the command line and shove it into the beginning of the file. Right. And so if, if I've got a, uh, one of these deeply embedded processors that has changed the language and introduced like uh, interrupt as a keyword and the regular C compiler says interrupt, what the hell's that? Okay. Game over. You can put a forced include in that turns interrupt into nothing. And now that line of code isn't the problem. There'll be another one. that will be a problem in a little while, something else. Uh, that line that thinks it's a register. Well, I can put in the forced include file. We'll start to collect all my little hacks, right? I start to yep. put those in. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if, if it wanted uh, something, capital I-N, kind of looks like a macro. Um, it's actually a register on a certain device. Mm -hmm. I can turn in into a integer. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Now, later I get a, li later I get a linker error. Right. You know? And this right, is but, to have like a, some kind of uh, uh, to be able to build this on a non-embedded compiler. Is that the the sort of that's the, right? Got it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, because if some of these deeply embedded things, you're not going to fit a test harness in there. You're, you maybe you can get assert and printf, maybe. But the first step is to make sure you can run it on your own computer uh, as part of your regular testing. And this is one of the techniques that you could employ to bring embedded code into. A world where you can build it on your Windows machine, your Linux machine, or whatever. Yeah, right. That's right. Yep. And uh, yeah, just teasing the code off of its environment. Uh, if you could, if people actually thought about portability, which of course nobody does, because what they're thinking about is we got to get this product to work. Uh, now, one of the things with hardware is it changes so fast. Um, you might have to re redo an embedded system because the part that you depend on in your in your product became obsolete. Gosh. <laughs> well. Now we, now, we never wanted to change the product, but uh, TI decided, decided to stop selling this part. So now we got to redesign the product. Or no, we could save 10 cents if we redesign the product. Okay, then you go and you know spend a half million dollars in non-recurring engineering to do that. It might be worth it. You know, so. But that almost points at 
a better design makes it easier to both to test, which would, you know, moving away from modular, separation of concerns, all the things that we've sort of talked yep. about. But if, yep. for example, I have to change, I don't know, my audio output device of my little embedded system because it's 10 cents cheaper to use a different DSP or a different, yep. whatever. I'm going to wave my hands a lot here and you're going to yeah, right. give me a lot of, yeah. um, but if that is encapsulated as the audio subsystem in a nice way that makes it, first of all, easy to test without actually having an audio subsystem, yeah. it also means it easier, perhaps, to just switch it out and say, well, I can write the test for my new audio system and drop it in and we're good to go. Have you observed that? Is that a, is that a thing that can happen? Yeah, there's a, there's a name for this. It's called hardware abstraction layer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, it's an old idea which... Gets ignored a lot. <laughs> and then I was listening to your last two podcasts, and you guys were talking about virtual functions are too expensive to use sometimes. Um, so you can just imagine the kind of conversations you get in where, oh, we need to add a function call here. It's like, I can't have a function call there. And gosh, you know, so I mean, a regular old direct function call, I can't have a direct. This needs to be a monolith of 5,000 lines with go tos. I'm sorry, I don't have a stack. It's like, is this true? Yes, this can be true. Oh my gosh! I mean, I live in a luxury land of of mostly modern compilers, uh, yes. and when you start talking about the vendors that you're talking, and so I make all these these grand claims in in presentations I do about the amazing things that compilers can do if you give them the right information. Yeah. So sometimes that kind of thing becomes a moot because oh no, the inliner can see through twelve levels of indirection, and you know that that function call goes away, and it's just you know register access plus plus or whatever. Yeah. But in the kind of compilers you're dealing with. That may not be true. You may be talking about a 15-year-old compiler with tons of magic extra keywords that aren't properly supported by any kind of optimization within the compiler. So you have to think about these in a very different way. That's a really yeah. interesting yeah. thought. Gosh, that's terrifying. <laughs> it was kind of funny. Uh, I went to Llewellyn Falco's uh, approval testing course a couple months ago. Oh, yeah. And... And uh, on the last day, I asked him, would you like me to show you one of the things I use for getting code into, you know, legacy code into the building? And they wanted me to show it. So we stayed after on a day. And then he had this revelation about five minutes. And he goes, oh, man, I've been so lucky. All my code actually builds right away. <laughs> you know, he's working. And it's like, I mean, one of the givens for your world is that sometimes the code won't even build. And it's like, that's right. You know, wow. So I've started automating uh, the legacy code build process mm -hmm. and i've started toying with this a while ago i was uh so my typical uh engagement with the client is i'll go and do a training class that lasts two or three days now i've kind of shortened it to two because people are overwhelmed at that point after two days anyway their brains are like yeah. kind of ready to explode with things that they'd never even considered before um, and then we spend the next day or two in their code. And, you know, so the first two days are in this ideal world where, um, you know, it's new code and we can see what the future could be. Right. And so you're talking about how do we help people motivate to um, to start to change. And uh, you're familiar with Cyber Dojo? I think I am. Is that sort of like a, a web-based um, typing code? Kind of like it? your compiler thing that you're working on. Is that right? Compiler Explorer. I mean, similar sort of goals, I think, in terms of like they allow you. Well, I didn't used yeah. to be able to run code, but I think code uh, yeah. CyberDojo is a thing which lets you actually write and run the code, and that's kind of the focus. Is that? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So I use it for my training. It's really revolutionized my uh, my business. Oh, cool. And uh, 
So what that means is that people, when they're in CyberDojo, it's a virtual environment. Uh, I have a cloud server that runs it, and I've customized it with my own code and that sort of thing. So I start people off on simple problems, and they find out how hard it is to get simple code to work, even if, you know, if there's nothing else going on. You know, so we build a FIFO, and, you know, what's yeah. that like? And, you know, can people actually incrementally grow a FIFO from a series of test cases, what we're trying to do, you know, starts out empty, then you put something in, it's not empty, you can know what the sequence is. And you're talking about a software FIFO here, just a pure, boring data structure FIFO, not like an actual hardware FIFO, you're just saying, no, can I put data in? Software, you know, the the interrupt routine happens, you pull the character off off the uh, device, you put it in a FIFO, something else consumes it later. Got it. You know, that's... And as you say, you're opening people's eyes to just the sheer number of things that can go wrong if you start Mm -hmm. TDD designing a FIFO from nothing is and, from nothing and then yep. working up and and that's yep. and, you, and by that point you've also you've extracted all of the embedded specific mm-hmm. issues and you're just saying let's learn about testing or how one yeah. could write this code first of all without right. thinking about that gosh yeah it might have been called from an error routine but right which brings it doesn't matter fun but that's <laughs> separation a of thing. concerns yeah. yeah yeah and so they get to see right. over over three yeah. uh, cycles of uh, I show that present a problem, uh, demo a little bit, have them do an exercise and a debrief. We do that three times. Um, they get to see, you know, how hard it is to get code to work at all. <laughs> and even when you're making little tiny changes. Yeah. Right. And uh, and then we go, and then it's like, okay, but what about our code? Now what do we do? Right. And uh, guess what the first problem is? Everybody's got these builds that take hours or, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think you guys were talking about build time last time, weren't you? We were. We were. Yeah, I listened to that. Yeah, so it will not it be like, the last time we talk yeah, about build time. Yeah, time. Like eight seconds, I think, was your guys' number. And you were talking about this rule of eights or something, right? Eights, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so I, I asked people beforehand to complete a questionnaire about how long their build time is. And uh, when they tell me that they don't have time for TDD, I say, hmm, well, you're – I'm telling you, spoiling it if any of your listeners are going to come to my class. But, oh. Uh, oh, oh, you know, so uh, you don't have time for TDD, but you don't mind waiting a half hour for a build? Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. You got a lot of time for TDD. Yeah. You got you got lots and lots of time. You What your problem is, you're building everything at once. You have a production build. You don't have any test builds. Yeah. You think a build is something that's permanent. A build is something you just need. You might need just for today. Or So we start to do that. And actually, then the problem is... Mm-hmm. I've never built this code in GCC or in Visual Studio, whatever they're choosing to use for their for their thing. Right, and it's like, right. I was just going to ask, how many people do you run into that have never tried to build their code for anything but the target platform? Does that happen? You can look at my survey on my website and see. I think I actually cut it off to the only the first hundred entries, but uh, just because I don't have the, I didn't, haven't implemented the next button yet. Uh, <laughs> And, I, and the <laughs> database is getting kind of big. It was kind of bogging my system down a little bit. And, I don't, and I'm cheap, so I didn't feel like buying a more expensive <laughs> um, web server. But, uh, you know, Amazon, the next price up would have cost me 10 I should, Never mind. I should stop talking about my cheapness. <laughs> <laughs> You're just efficient. You're just engineering efficiency. <laughs> yeah. Most, most people uh, that are doing embedded systems, very few are actually testing off target. Yeah, uh, yeah. Now, I'm starting to see more of it. And oftentimes right. it's the person whose idea it was to come to my course yeah, and to bring right. his, his colleagues with them, right? And so yeah. um, it's more common to only build for the uh, the target system, right? And 
And I think back to my first 20 years of development. That's what we did. Yeah. We, yeah. You know, we, we might have run the compiler on it, but we never tried to run it. We tried mm-hmm. to run little pieces of it. And then as soon as we had the target, we never ran it anywhere but the target after that. Mm-hmm. And part of the story is the targets have problems. You know, they're built by humans too. Yeah. And they've got <laughs> bugs. And so, you know, I kind of want to be able to do finger pointing more accurately. It's like, well, my code I know right. does this. And that's, you know. The, the idea that people haven't used multiple compilers on their code is is always useful. I mean, like as a as a developer who's mo- mainly in the server space, if you just point clang and clang tidy, static analysis and GCC yeah. and all the different vari- variants of GCC, different versions, you always learn something new and you turn all the warnings on and yeah. you look at... There's just so much information that the compilers can give you about your own code. Um, and if you've only ever pointed one, and especially if you've yeah. only done, like you say, like a release build, because... Yeah. Um, very often, I, as I understand it, these embedded systems don't have the same amount of memory or storage as uh, as you would want if you were to do an unoptimized build. Or even I've had um, people arguing for not using some abstractions in C++ for embedded systems quite reasonably because if you don't build them in the full level of, of optimization, yeah. then those those abstractions don't go away. The compiler isn't able to optimize them out. And then you miss like timing windows for hardware access and stuff like that. So it does seem like a very different world for the target device in release build versus having the opportunity to build it with uh, like the memory sanitizers that we now have access to on development machines, you know, Valgrind and it's like and all of those other things that come with it. And it seems like a no brainer, but obviously without knowing the techniques that you were talking about, you know, without like force including some compatibility header, yeah. it seems insurmountable to take your 5,000 line code that every third line is is using some register keyword in a very unsuspicious way and, and get it building on your Windows machine and running it. How much easier in your experience, especially with embedded systems, if you start out and you have the luxury of a Greenfield project and you start out with enough people, you know, part of the team that's building it where they sort of, you know, they buy into this philosophy of, okay, we're going to write tests and we're going to have, you know, we're going to target multiple platforms and we're going to, you know, set up the environment so that we can build and run these tests quickly. How how much of an improvement is that over trying to retrofit it later in your experience? I was lucky in my younger days to be in a lot of greenfield things because nobody knew how to program computers then. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing. But, uh, you're, making your, so you're making yourself sound very, very old, which you're not. So <laughs> please carry on. <laughs> well, I'm older than like 95% of all the programmers probably at this point, right? People that are practicing. That might that might kind of always be true though. Isn't there like a curve? Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. I think Bob was Bob Martin was saying that uh, every five years it doubles. Yeah, so, right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So pretty much almost everybody has less than five years experience. Right, right. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, okay, what was I talking about? <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about whether if you're starting Greenfield versus oh, yeah, right, retrofitting right, right. later and the relative Greenfield. costs there. All right, yeah, okay. So, uh, well, most of the world doesn't have that luxury because they're having to deal with right. somebody else's thing that they already did or they're moving it to a new platform because the hardware keeps changing. Right. Yeah. And so I, it's really common to run into, you know, one of the questions I'll ask in a course is, okay, who's got five-year-old code? You see the hands go up. Who's got 10-year-old code? Who's got 20-year-old code? Who's got 30-year-old? Yeah. You know, if you're at like a telecom company, it's like we've got 50-year-old oh, yeah. code. 
you know, right. so um, it can be, <laughs> yeah. I mean, also probably C, you're not going to have any C older than 50 years, but you're going to have 40, you can have 30 and 40 year old C code, right? It's possible. For sure. Right now, right? Um, so a lot of people live in that. Now, uh, I, for sure, it's easier starting from a green field. And it also helps if you know what to do, because a lot of people don't really know what to do in that situation because they don't get it very often. Um, right. You know, it's like, oh, well, you know, when you first write tests for, when you have no code, the tests are kind of stupid and trivial and testing ridiculous stuff. Okay, but it doesn't take long for the code to go beyond that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you guys familiar with the zombie uh, acronym? No, uh, so, I heard that one. No, uh, what is zombie? So that's, uh, I've got an article about it, TDD Guided by Zombies. It's on my blog. Mm-hmm. And uh, zombie stands for zero, one, many. And then, mm, uh, okay. Okay, it's a two-dimensional acronym. Or maybe a multi-dimensional acronym. <laughs> Zero, one, many is a linear part. And then the other side of the matrix are boundaries, interfaces, exceptional situations, and keep it simple. And nice. uh, basically starting off in something in TDD is find the zero test first. So it, it metaphorically, it's good with something like a collection because, well, what if the collection is empty? What can you do? Right, um, right, right. You can check to see if it's empty. You can make sure it's not full. You know, if I'm looking at, let's use circular buffer because that's, what that's what's in the article. Um and then you're kind of out of stuff to do at that point. And then, well, what can we do next? Well, you we can put something in. Oh, then it's not empty anymore, and it's probably not full because it's probably not a one-element thing. right? Mm-hmm. So you kind of grow your way. And while you're doing this, you're paying attention to different things. Interfaces. In the beginning test, you're really trying to get your interfaces right so that they're convenient to mm-hmm. use. right? Mm-hmm. And it's trivial to get them to pass because you don't really need uh, much code to say return true. It's empty, you know. And uh, most people go, oh, that's such a worthless test. Your code is wrong, too. So why are you so happy right now? Yeah, but that test saves you later, right? Yeah. When you, yeah. When you add the code that makes it possibly not return true, but you, you don't. That's right. Yeah, so I'll hear, yeah. I'll hear from people after this first experience. They'll say, well, it's just against my principles to write code that I know is wrong. It's like, okay, yeah. but you don't mind writing code that you don't know is wrong. <laughs> you write code that's wrong all the time because we all do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're writing code that's wrong. You just and you're okay not knowing about that. Okay. You know, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, but the uh, yeah, it's certainly easier with that. I, I did this other conference talk, which uh, what is what's it called? It's uh, tracer bullets and uh, zombies or something like that. <laughs> and uh, the idea with the tracer bullets, you know, it's a pragmatic programmer idea. I didn't. I yeah. was using their term. Uh, but you go start looking for the unknowns and, you know, it said, you know, oh, we're going to build this. Uh, I was working on a project for my brother, IOT radios. And, uh, you know, I didn't know anything about IOT mm-hmm. radios. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. And th- pretty much there's a long list of all the stuff I didn't know anything about. And he's asking me to help him. So it's like, sure, this will be fun. What you might do is you might go work on the business part of the problem because you understand that and you'd be comfortable with that, right? Oh, when we take the uh, a reading, we convert it to uh, PSI, and then we can do these formulas in PSI. We all we know what those already were, so we could have worked on that. Except all the risk in this project is all the things we don't know. And so with yeah. uh, the tracer bullet approach, is you go start looking for those unknowns and try to build the walking skeleton of you know can I get uh, a pressure reading from next to the fire hydrant 
uh, onto the tablet for the guy through all the layers, you know, which involved mm-hmm. uh, IoT devices. And, uh, well, it's about nine layers by the time you're done Go. of mm-hmm. stuff I didn't know about. You know, when I first started, I only thought there were five layers of things I didn't know about. And then by the time we finished, there <laughs> were nine. Um, yeah, yeah. And we could prove the concept then, though. Now, uh, where I'm getting to with this and what's interesting is that all those little boundaries, the code that's in between is just like hard, you know, it's like a hard-coded, uh, well, um, you know, none of the air checking is really there. It's just about can I transport something from the bottom all the way to the top right? and the right. little things you learn along the way. And now after you get, once you've proven you can do that, the, pretty much the high-risk stuff is gone. And now you can say, well, we get a reading once every second. And you know, from 10 sensors, we get readings once every second. You got to collect those together and present them in a JSON package to the web browser, right? You know, so there's now once you've proven you could do anything, then you start to do the stuff which is pure software, right? And so you're shooting the tracer bullets to find out the, all the stuff you don't know and getting something to work on this edge where you're not going to bother writing tests for that because you need an integration test, not a a unit test, mm-hmm. and then you try to minimize that thing that's out of, outside your control mm-hmm. and maximize the thing that is pure software right. where you can play the zombies game. Right, 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 right. right. Okay, you know, so yeah. Right? So if I only had one sen- – if I had no sensors reporting, <laughs> what would I report to the web browser? Nothing. If I had one sensor, what would I report? If I got two, it, you know, what would I – you know, so you can start to uh, grow the stuff in between. Right. And, uh, you know, as much as we talk about, you know, engineering techniques, a.k.a. hacks for <laughs> testing embedded systems in strange and interesting ways. It's amazing how many so so many of those techniques are so portable from one programming language to another, from one library to another, from one environment to another. You know, once you start learning this sort of basic philosophy of, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to test this with, uh, with null values, with zero values, with empty lists. And yes, the tests will initially look very dumb, but they're going to lay a foundation that I can then build on as I add more complicated things. You know, techniques like you're talking about, like the tracer bullet, you know, sometimes people call that the steel thread where you cut through all the different layers of the system, defining sort of simple versions of the API as you go. Yep. And because those are testable, you're confident that you can change later. It's like, oh, well, we have to support this and this and this. Yeah, but don't worry about that yet. With the tests in place, we can change our mind. We don't have to get the perfect design up front because we know we're confident that we can change it later and not break anything. Yep. And it's those those techniques, like some of the techniques that you learn are just not portable. Like I can tell you terrible things that I've done to test asynchronous Python in the last six months <laughs> that pretty much are not useful in any other situation unless you're using asynchronous Python and that's it. But there are lots of these techniques that you learn that can be applied in lots of different environments. And you sort of get a lot of, you know, bang for your buck when you're when you're sort of learning those techniques. Yeah. And you remember all those years ago when we were together in Texas mm-hmm. and uh, I was wanted to do something with a socket. I'd never done it before. And so I was talking to you and you said, oh, it's easy. Just do this, this, and this. Do you remember that? You know, I don't remember that, but I'm really glad that whatever it was that I said was good. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you, you helped me. So we were trying to uh, adapt fitness to this uh, thing at Sabre. Oh, yeah. Sabre Airlines. I remember. Right? Yeah. And I was trying to listen in, trying to intercept the traffic and record it. And I'd never done anything with a socket before. So now people ask me, well, if I want to test drive code with a socket, what do I do? It's like you wrap the socket up in something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you integration test that. 
and then you mm-hmm. build yourself an abstraction layer over a socket. What are you trying to do with your socket? I'm trying to send messages from one thing to another. Okay. Your application shouldn't be about sockets. Your application should be about getting something from something that delivered you one and right. The thing yeah, underneath yeah, that yeah, happens yeah. to be a socket. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so you helped me down that. And I, that, uh, knowing what to do when there's something that's outside your control is hide it. And I saw you, um, Matt's making the, I thought he was trying to get us to end, <laughs> no, end no, the conversation. No, no, no. He yeah, was kind of loving it. I love this. I think it's just wonderful <laughs> Manual to hear Manual heart emoji there. Yes. I mean, for, yeah. for me, it's just interesting to hear like stories of early Ben. <laughs> so I'm I'm tapping you up here to learn about my friend here through through your interactions, yeah. you know, two decades ago. No, Ben was great. He knew way more Java than I did. So uh, that was good. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was back in the Java yeah. days, man. Yeah. No, I mean it's and you know we were we were talking at the time about like those abstractions you you can create them for testing but they they make your code more reusable whether you like it or not yeah. right it's like it, it's like inflicting reusability on you in a good way where it's like you know if you create abstractions that hide yeah okay this is a socket and we made that for testing but you know maybe it could be a file and you wouldn't even know the difference That's right, right. Um, sure. Or like a you know a basic thing is like standard in standard out right like I'm reading from a socket could I also read from standard in yeah it's the, if you if, if you design those abstractions to be minimal and simple so you sometimes get that for free yeah and that's you know one of the great benefits benefits of testing that again I think cuts across all different environments all different languages uh, it just it just helps you no matter where where you're working right you know you run into people that say oh no test driven development couldn't possibly work for us because we're special yeah because right? yeah. we do. We do this. It's like, okay, you're special. I, yes, you are. But you know what? It doesn't matter. Okay. So <laughs> yep. the uh, problem solving techniques, you know, the problem in an embedded system is you depend on hardware. The problem with a web uh, based application is you depend on the database, right? What do we do? We break the dependency, isolate yeah. the, right? Okay. So the ideas are portable. So you got lots to learn from different people. Matt, you mentioned memory checking. So CPPU tests the, uh, the open source uh, test harness that we use a lot for embedded systems built on mm-hmm. C++, we built in memory leak detection into it. Nice. And, uh, and it's extremely important because yeah. everything leaks pretty much if you're not paying attention. Right. And I mean, especially if, if you're dealing with older C compilers that don't have some of the newer n- nice things that yeah. have come with C++, which have closed a lot of the doors. But yeah. yeah. Then you got to know how to work those too. And True. someone might not want to pay for them, right? True. I mean, from a, because you're talking about constrained environments, right? You were, I know in one of your earlier episodes, you're saying, well, we, we can't afford the virtual function. Okay. I remember yeah. the first time that happened. Now, your p- compiler explorer would have been really useful to me back, <laughs> back, back then. <laughs> right. That's kind of why it exists, is exactly because of those type of things. So, yeah. Uh-huh. Is yeah. that why it exists? Okay. Because here it is I am exactly at Motorola. answering those questions yeah. of like, can we do this thing? I don't know if we can afford that. Let's have a look yeah. at what it does. Yeah. But yes, yeah, so you were at Motorola. Yeah. I'm at Motorola 20 years ago, and uh, um, I'm proposing that we put an interface on something with virtual functions. And the uh, lead engineer says, no, we can't use virtual functions here. It's like, why not? Because our document says we can't. And, oh. uh, and that, well, I, I'm exaggerating a little bit. And I said, well, why does your document say you can't? He said, because they're too big. Oh, okay. And then I went off and did an experiment. And I'll use a little air. So the virtual function dispatch was about this big. And the direct function was about this big. But guess what the alternative was? A switch case, which was this right. big. 
Right? Yeah, so, yeah, um, just right. For the purposes of the <laughs> listeners, uh, the switch case was considerably larger than the, by either of the other two things that James yeah. gestured at us. It took yeah. uh, two switch elements to uh, exceed the virtual function dispatch. Gosh, right? and, so you that's know, so really it's interesting. Like, you can't just look at the micro. You got to look at the big picture. Absolutely. And, uh, now, the last thing I want to just mention because it's if there's anybody in this kind of world trying to drag existing code into a test harness, and I wouldn't mind if anybody wanted to uh, contribute to it. It's a thing I call Gen X fakes, and I mean no disrespect for Gen Xers. Okay. Um, it's it's Gen Dash X fakes. And X-Fake stands for Exploding Fakes. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> that sounds painful. I mean, <laughs> you're going to... Well, Exploding Fake, so I'll make this fast, because when you're uh, in an embedded world, we never got over to the what about legacy code part. So yeah, yeah. You know, first, what would be possible, right, is you know kind of how I start my course out, and then we have to deal with the real world after that, and your mileage may vary. But um, pulling code under to get under test, first off, you say include something. You can't find the include file. Okay, then you got to go find out where the include file is and put it in your in your test case. And then now it can recognize your code. And then of course your include file won't build because there's other include files missing. So you go in this loop for a long time. I call this crash to pass, and it's up on my uh, my blog too. Eventually you get to linker errors, and when you get to linker errors, um, this this whole process is very incremental way to drag code into no batch mode, just one error at a time. When you get to linker errors, you get like 100 linker errors, right? And I'm only trying to test like one little function out of this thousand line file, and I want to test 100 lines of it, let's say. And if I got, I'm just going to pick some numbers, 20 unresolved external references that are unique, I really probably only need two of them to be resolved into real fakes spies or fakes or mocks or something. But the other ones, I've got to get the linker to be happy, so I need something for them too. So Gen X fakes will look at the linker output and produce a bunch of little test stubs that if you happen to execute them, it will fail the, it'll exit the uh, test. Oh, like, interesting. The test. Got it. So this is a way of, of, of essentially, as you say, taking the, the things that you know that you called that you think you don't need and generating essentially just stubs that say uh, we're done. Yeah, they say explode. They they abort. Yep. They print print out and boom. they fail the test. And it's like no, you you need to either stub this out or fake it out or mock it out, or you need to remove the dependency right. on calling that function. And this allows you to link a subset That's right. of your that you build and link against a tiny subset of your giant program in order to test just that one small element of the program. That's, That's right. amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so yeah. So if you had a thousand line or a 10,000-line file, and I've seen 100,000-line files in my <laughs> right, legacy yes. adventures. I don't <laughs> You know, to drag that under test is, you know, it's going to have so many linker errors, people are going to, they're going to keep wanting to give up. Right. And so, uh, now Gen X Fakes, I've added to it a little script because the there's a series of things that you do a lot of, like, what include path do I need to add to my test build? Uh, so if it gets the error that says can't find include file, it goes and runs a find command on your directory right. structure and then produces a little line that, that you could add to your make file. It's like, here, put this in your make file. Right. <laughs> and now it can find that file. 
And, you know, there's a series of things like that. that uh, Like a toolkit for making it as straightforward as possible to get to a yeah. point when you don't have a sane build system. Like, you know, I'm, I'm used to having these big sprawling projects that have been set up by me to be sensible and like subcontained and like everything can just include itself and whatever. Yeah. But if you're not in that luxurious world where you just pull in the header file, you're like, no, this is a great way of say, taking just one small subset and, and building out a fast test. So you're talking about... Yeah, yeah start to get it's amazing. And then, if, and then you have people... Uh, well, okay, so that's a start. And then three years later, somebody will send me an email. It's like, oh, it's really great. We did the stuff you talked about, and now our code base is completely different yeah, and really great. Yeah, that that's, <laughs> makes you feel good you get to that point, for sure. Well, because of three years of, of not... They weren't trying to do that. But as they went to different places, they followed the Boy Scout rule. Yeah. Which is make You're some right. improvement. Just make it a little better. Make it a little bit better. Yep. And if you choose always to just take another shortcut, then it's always going to get worse. But if right. you know more times than not you choose to make it a little bit better, then eventually it's going to get better. So yep, yep. That's really that's the only way to sort of revive those legacy systems, at least in my experiences. You just got to change your philosophy, which can be hard for other reasons, but you, it takes no real technical work. Change your philosophy, and then just apply that philosophy going forward, doing the things, that, accomplishing the goals that you would try to accomplish otherwise, right. right? Like we have products that we need to get out. We need features we need to add. We need bugs we need to fix. Yeah, do all those same things. Just apply a different technique, and eventually you'll find yourself in a very different place, which yeah. is, you know, it's a little bit like boiling a frog. You don't notice that it happens, but sort of <laughs> looking back on it, you go, wow, we really made some serious changes here. It's kind of amazing. So speaking of looking back, uh, I, I wanted to, to ask you about uh, the sort of the upcoming 20-year anniversary of the signing of the Agile Manifesto. For me, you know, we've kind of talked about this on, on earlier episodes of the show, the Agile movement, XP in particular, for me was, was a, uh, uh, a welcome change from uh, other processes that I was using when I first got out of school, right? Like we were, I worked at this place that was using the Rational Unified Process and had these sort of very, you know, formal mechanisms for defining requirements and writing code. And we never did any sort of automated testing. It was all kind of manual testing. You know, we had manual testers that would verify our code. And for me, Agile and, and XP in particular was a movement toward more engineering-focused tasks. Because at the end of the day, software is written by programmers. Well, sometimes it's written by double E's, but usually <laughs> software is written by programmers. And so orienting the, 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 the project, orienting the team, orienting all these things around what the programmers are doing was at the time a novel idea, but, you know, it, it, to me made a whole lot of sense. So I just kind of wanted to ask you, you know, over that time frame, you know, did Agile turn out to be the thing that you expected? What was different about it? What sort of like, you know, looking back at the world as you saw 20 years ago, what would you have predicted that has actually happened today? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing? <laughs> well. Wow. Um, so, so what? No, okay. So there's a, that's a short answer. Because um, what was the expectation at the time? The expectation was, who cares? Um, you know. Will yeah. anyone care? We had no idea that anybody would care about those four bullet points. And mm -hmm. uh, by the way, there was no signing of anything. So there was the writing of those four bullet points and then uh, a debating of the 12 practices that backed it up over email afterwards, um, which I kind of mm -hmm. watched. I was really learning from these guys at this time, right? So mm -hmm. I'm there as a 20-year person 
having done uh, stuff, you know, helping my former employer learn waterfall and, you know, trying to get them to go from chaos <laughs> to something that, that, you know, we could start to get some quality. And um, yeah. then the 90s were uh, trying to um, improve processes, but also uh, um, iterative was starting to be talked about a little bit more with the object-oriented programming, you know, evolutionary type stuff was starting to be talked about. Um, and then I think uh, late 90s when the words extreme programming were uttered, it's like, what does that mean? Because extreme sports were big then. It's like, oh, we'll have to wear elbow pads. Yeah, yeah. And, right, Climb some up of a mountain with a laptop. Ridiculous jokes. Yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, so we were uh, at Object Mentor, Bob Martin's company. We were learning from Kent and Ward and uh, Ron and uh, Martin Fowler about how to how to do these things. And so we're about three year, two years into it at uh, Snowbird. And, um, you know, if somebody asks me to go skiing in Snowbird, what am I going to say? Okay. Right. <laughs> I'm going to say yes. All right. And so. Yeah. Right. Okay. So uh, that was, and then you're going to go hang out with these guys that you respect and talk about software yeah, development. Yeah. So that's what uh, the meeting was. It, you know, the couple of things that, um, I forgot, but a friend of mine who I did a lot of consulting with out there at the time, Jean Johansson, a few years later, he reminded me, he said, you know, after that meeting, you said that you brought the note cards. And this was something us XP people would do. I was part of the XP extreme programming contingent of that at that meeting. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, these all could be false memories by now, having talked <laughs> about this stuff and, and made them a little more yeah. interesting each time you talk about it. But... Uh, so uh, my friend John said, yeah, you told me like right after that meeting that you tossed the note cards out. And one of the techniques that we were using in those days, well, actually in the 80s, uh, as part of total quality management at uh, the company Bob Martin and I worked together at uh, total quality management was about structured problem solving and communicating in a way that was non-threatening, that sort of thing. And so we would uh, do brainstorming on note cards, you know, and you'd say, well, what do we... Why, you know, what do we want out of what's the problem with software development or what do we want? And so um, we started writing on note cards and then seeing if uh, there was any agreement. Right. And so uh, mm -hmm. then it probably moved quickly to the to the whiteboard. And it turned out to be, you know, well, having a plan isn't bad, but there's something, you know, Plans change, so we, we should have a plan, but we shouldn't not change. So, you know, the whole something over the other thing, yeah. that, that conversation right, right, right. started happening. Um, yeah, that particular phrasing in the Angel Manifesto of like, these are okay, but this is better, yeah. right? Like, that's just... And most readers yeah. of that now, um, if they're, you know, kind of against the idea of Agile, only read the other side and say, well, of course, uh, they're against plans, so, you know, get rid of yeah, them, yeah. right? You know, so... Right. Um, but... It was really about, uh, uh, you know, trying to see how we could collaborate better. Now, like you, Ben, I was in there because I thought this was a better process. I was really kind of into the process-oriented thing. I'm an engineer, so um, I'm thinking about problem solving and effective mm -hmm. ways to problem solve. And, you know, so I'm there thinking that. And Alistair goes, oh, the process, yeah, it's important, but it's more important the people you're with. And yeah, yeah. That first bullet point was about people, and it was just kind of like, I came here to talk about extreme programming. They're talking about people being playing nice together. 
And uh, I mean, you know, <laughs> there's so many um, software engineering problems turned out to be people problems, as I think it's oh, yeah. taken me 20 years. Yeah, that's to realize, a Weinberg thing, right? But, yeah, you said all tech. Yeah, yeah. There are no technical problems; are only people problems. And I think, yeah, you yeah. become more yeah. and more aware of that the more you, you more yeah. you program with people, yeah. right? Yeah, so uh, so that was kind of interesting, and then the the fact that it became popular, like a friend of mine, uh, you remember Lowell, of course, Ben, right from Object Mentor. He was a business manager. Uh yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. So like about six years after that, um, we were talking, and you know, I was looking at uh, starting my own company because I wanted to get embedded people doing um, TDD and stuff. I couldn't get them to come to Object Mentor, and Lowell mm-hmm. said to me, oh, James. You know, you're part of the Agile Manifesto. That's like instant credibility. It's like what? Mm-hmm. Why? <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to go skiing. <laughs> yeah, come on. It's like, well, you were there though. Talk it's like, okay, right place, so, right time. Yeah, and it's turned out to be a really good thing for the resume. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, so right after starting to learn about extreme programming, I was working with a, a company doing embedded stuff, and I had 20 years of embedded, and so I just started experimenting with them and it turned out it was a good idea there so fantastic Mm -hmm. yeah now as far as how agile has done in hindsight i was pretty pumped about how it was doing 10 years ago because i thought there was a lot of improvement happening Mm -hmm. and now i'm kind of disenchanted because uh yeah i think we're back i think we're in the dogma following rather than problem solving right right and uh you know scrum Right. Is wildly popular. Yeah. And if you go to a scrum gathering, there are no engineers there. Right. Which, which I mean, except for me, they invite me to go and talk. <laughs> talk right. And I, I complain about there not being any engineers. It's like, where are your engineers? It's like, well, they don't like scrum. I mean, they don't say that. Um, well, it's true. But if, if, you, if you go online and you read about what engineers think of Agile, they think it's horrible because, right. this is, here's my rant, is it's not focused on the engineering skills is not what the yep. the world has done. And if yep. you remember, did you ever go to one of the extreme programming immersions back in the old days? No, I didn't have the travel budget back then. I, I didn't get yeah. to go. Okay. So uh, the way we, the first extreme programming immersion was, uh, well, filled with, you know, people that already knew it and loved it. But we tried, not everybody, but we, I think we tried to start from the top down. Mm-hmm. management practices down to engineering practice and it was if it, if everybody didn't already want to be there it would have been a disaster um, it didn't work mm-hmm. and then yeah. we started teaching the engineering practices first yeah yeah and you know by thursday when you introduce uh stories and planning it's like oh big deal it's like right now, now we know now we know what a little piece of work is yeah and if you start the other way and this is one of my gripes about agile is it starts the other way the hard way and it alienates the engineering people that have been learning how to do stuff you know by planning and you know not writing code until right it's too late right (laughs) instead of starting sooner yeah and learning sooner yeah right and so uh for me the the most amazing thing about xp in particular was that the realization that if you follow the set of engineering practices which are things like tester development pair programming to a certain extent, continuous integration. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that you don't have to do, like project management stuff that you don't have to do. And that is extremely threatening if your job is project manager, right? No, yeah. <laughs> That's not what you want to hear, right? <laughs> you want to you hear 
the opposite of that. And so that's, I think part of the problem is, is that the reason that Agile has kind of gotten away from that being, you know, not just, you know, to say it's rooted in engineering practices or should be rooted in engineering practices is almost underselling it. It is like 95% engineering practices. And once you have that foundation in place, you only need to add another little 5% to make the whole thing work, right? Yep. Like it doesn't yep. take that much. It just takes some note cards and a couple of conversations and an understanding of what you're trying to build. And, and you can do amazing things without having to add a whole bunch of cost. You could probably even be successful with Jira at that point. <laughs> I mean, let's wow. not let's not take this too I'm, far. I I'm, don't talking make out of, I'm talking out of the side of my mouth. I don't know anything about Jira, but I do hear people complain <laughs> I, I about it. People oh, complain man. about whatever I, tracking and management system you put in place. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it's true. I still have to try to explain to people. It's like the whole idea behind a story card is that it's a promise to have a conversation. Like it's yeah. about the conversation. Like we're going to talk about this. We don't need to. We don't need to have like this huge Jira system for capturing all the requirements, putting all the things, and figuring everything out. That's not what this. That's not what a story is, right? The story is yeah. we're going to talk about. It. But I don't know. I, and now I'm just ranting. Thank you for not calling it a user story. Uh, yeah. Because uh-huh. it's really I, a story. You know, that that yeah, word is like it's unfortunate. Yeah. Um, there's there's a lot. Of, I think there's a lot of that. I would call it nuance, but it's really the most important part. But a lot of that stuff that kind of got lost over the years, um, yep. which is a shame. But, you know, yeah. some of us still know what it is. <laughs> That's good. Some of us still know how it's supposed to work. I was out with these guys, um, uh, but uh, I'm out to dinner and after a conference and with a business guy. And uh, we were talking about Agile. And I said, yeah, people are only doing the easy half of Agile. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, so I said, yeah, only doing the easy half of Agile. And then he said to me, well, what's the hard half? And I said, oh, the technical practices of the hard half. And he goes, no, that's not the hard half. The hard half is the people half. <laughs> and it's like I hit myself in the head. It's like, oh, damn, there's three halves. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you got the planning half, you got the people half, and you've got the technical half. It's like, oh, yeah, well, <laughs> okay. We're going to need a bigger boat. That's yep. Well, that sounds like an absolutely perfect place to <laughs> to stop the conversation that yeah. we obviously keep on for many hours. Oh, man. There's a lot of interesting things to talk about here. But <laughs> yeah. before we go, James, do you want to let our listeners know how uh, they can find you online? Uh, like you mentioned your blog a few times yeah. and um, any other way of contacting you. Yeah, okay. So my website is wingman-sw.com, Wingman Software. And uh, I wrote a book, Test Driven Development for Embedded C. If you search for that, you'll find me at JW Grenning on Twitter. Those are ways to find me. Fantastic. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. This has been so interesting and enlightening, and certainly lovely to hear other people struggling with different types of testing in C. And then obviously to hear about the agile stuff too is just <laughs> mind blowing for me. So thank you so much for being with us. Well, hey, it was great to talk to uh, two guys that get it. And uh, I think uh, I really liked your first two episodes of your, oh, thanks. Of your uh, podcast. Well, hopefully it's just and a few. I like the yeah. little game, the game theme. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm the one player yeah. or two player <laughs> one day someone will figure out how to actually get to the podcast from the main page but I'm not holding my breath <laughs> cool you've been listening to Two's Compliment a programming podcast by Ben Rady and Matt Godbold 
Find the show transcript and notes at twoscompliment.org. Contact us on Twitter at 2CP. That's at T-W-O-S-C-P. Theme music by Inverse Phase, inversephase.com. <laughs>